There is a lot not to like about Christians in the church in our current culture. I mean, let's be honest, we've all seen pastors, we've all seen Christians act self-righteous publicly, and then later we discover just how privately hypocritical they were. We can point to churches that treat people disrespectfully, that refuse to value anyone who doesn't believe and behave just like them. And we can talk about churches and Christians who do the unthinkable, who commit and or cover up sexual abuse, racism, mistreatment of women, get-rich-quick schemes. I mean, that's not true of all churches or all Christians or all pastors, obviously, but at the same time, it's not just an isolated problem, is it? So how did we get here? How did it get so messed up? Let's talk about it in this week's episode of Journey at Home. about it, every problem with the church today can be traced back to one root issue. We've allowed what I call the religion model to get mixed up with what Jesus came to introduce to the world. So let me explain. You pick any religion you want and you'll see that they all share four components. There's sacred places, sacred texts, sacred men, and then sincere followers. So every religion has a place or a handful of places that they consider sacred. Even Christians have this because they think of the church building as sacred. It's why they, they call it the house of the Lord. So if you really want to connect with God, well, you need to go to that sacred place. And then when you get there, you'll find those sacred places hold sacred text. They're controlled by sacred men. And these men have extraordinary power because in some religions, they get to determine whether you get access to the sacred place which means they determine whether you get access to God. And these men have power because they are believed to be the only ones with the ability to interpret those sacred texts and tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Because after all, you couldn't possibly learn for yourself, could you? So all of that creates sincere or sometimes scared and superstitious followers who are going to do their best to follow the rules because they want to stay on the right side of God and they want to stay on the right side of the sacred men who control their access to God. Now, when that mentality, when it gets mixed into what Jesus came to introduce to us, well, it becomes toxic. It's why so many people resist the church. But when Jesus showed up, he had no tolerance for any part of the religion model mixing with what he was creating. Jesus came to end the religion model and introduce something brand new that overhauls and changes everything. He taught there were no more sacred places, only sacred people. Matter of fact, think about this. He taught that the persons to your left and right, well, they're far more sacred than any place you visit. He taught there are no more sacred men who control your access to God. No, no, no. Everybody has equal access to God now. So I don't have any more access or pull with God than you do. I mean, anybody can pray and God's going to hear them. And Jesus said that this sacred text that we call Scripture well, it was for you. And while I hope that I can help you better understand it, listen, you don't need me to understand it. If you're a follower of Jesus, God's Spirit lives within you, and He will help you understand what it means and how to apply it to your life. So Jesus didn't show up and add to the religion model. He showed up and He introduced something brand new that really overhauls everything. He introduced a new movement that was established by a new covenant, and it was built on a new command. And he did it to clear up all the confusion about who God is. 
and how you can have a relationship with him. So as we go through this series over the next few episodes, what I want to do is explain to you Jesus' model that he introduced to us and how when you embrace it and you lose your religion, well, you'll actually improve your life. So let me start by explaining in this episode Jesus' new movement. So one day Jesus is traveling with his 12 disciples to the city of Caesarea Philippi. This was a Roman city that had been named in honor of Caesar Augustus and King Philip II. And apparently, as Jesus and his followers are traveling, his closest disciples, a discussion begins among these disciples about the different theories that people had as to who Jesus was. Because at one point, Jesus interrupts a conversation and he asks them this. He says, well, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Jesus, and others say you're Elijah, and still others think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You know, in other words, there, there are people who think you're John the Baptist who has come back to life, and other people think, well, you're one of the prophets from our history that's come back to life, but everybody's certain you're some kind of religious figure. Nobody's clear on who you are, though. They're just confused. And then Jesus gets personal. He says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? In other words, okay, what I want to know is, are you guys who've been with me 24-7, are you clear on who I am, or are you confused too? And as usual, Peter speaks up, but this time Peter gets it right. He says, well, you're the Messiah. That's what we believe. You're the son of the living God. In other words, we believe you're the one that our people, we've waited on for centuries. You're God come to earth in skin and bone. Now, I just want you to pause for a second and think about what an incredible statement that was. Imagine what Peter must have seen, what he must have heard, what he must have experienced being with Jesus to have concluded that he was actually eye to eye with God. And when Jesus hears Peter's response, he doesn't deny it. He actually validates it. He says, well, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. I mean, your heavenly Father has actually showed you who I am. And then he looks at him and he says, and I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock, on this statement of the identity of who I am, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, it's unfortunate because today, when we read or hear build my church, well, we think sacred space and place, don't we? We think a building. But when Jesus said this, he did not actually use a word that referred to a place at all. The word he used that we translated church actually refers to a gathering or an assembly or a movement of people. Jesus was saying, hey, Peter, I'm going to launch a new movement of people who are united around who I am and a new movement of people that will clear up the confusion about who I am. In other words, according to Jesus, the church is a movement of people who follow the one who came to communicate and demonstrate what God is like. So Jesus didn't show up to begin a sacred place with a sacred group of men who have inside knowledge that nobody else can get. No, Jesus announced the beginning of a brand new movement, a movement that was built on, that was centered around his identity, who he is, the truth that he was God in human flesh. And the goal of that movement is simple. It's to help people know that Jesus did explain God, and he cleared the way to God, and he made it easy for people to connect with God. So, you know, a church, well, it should be most known for not being a sacred place. The thing the church should be most known for is not a sacred text or sacred people. No, no, no. The church 
shouldn't be known for following rules. It shouldn't be known for keeping the Ten Commandments. It shouldn't be known for obeying some religious code. The church, this movement, well, we should be known for what God is known for. And all you have to do to know that is to read what those closest to Jesus said about him after they spent three years with him. For instance, I'll give you an example. John, one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, well, he wrote this about Jesus after he reflected on all that he had seen and heard and experienced with Jesus. He wrote, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, John goes, okay, when I think about my time with Jesus, I realize he didn't separate himself from us. He didn't isolate himself from sinners. He didn't insulate himself from our brokenness. No. John goes, Jesus came and he dwelled right among us. He didn't walk away from the mess. He walked right toward it. He didn't lean away from our sin. He leaned right into it. That's what we should be known for as the church. We should be known as people who walk toward the messes and serve people when they're broken. We should be known as people who lean in and love people even when they disagree with us. We ought to be known for building bridges, not creating barriers. I mean, anytime you see a church or a Christian create barriers between them and people who don't believe or behave just like they do, anytime you see Christians demonstrate an us versus them mentality, listen, you can be certain that is a group of Christians who have mixed in the religion model and miss the brand new movement Jesus introduced to the world. When John thought about Jesus, he thought, God moved into our neighborhood. He leaned right into our mess. And then he added this in his writing. He said, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. If you were to ask John, what was Jesus like? I mean, you were with him for three years, 24-7. What was he like? John would say, oh, I... He was full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, you're telling me he just gave everybody a pass and told everybody, oh, you do you, you're fine. No, no, no. That's not what grace looks like. Oh, so he told everybody like it was and he hammered them with everything they were doing wrong. Nope. That's not what truth looks like. Jesus was full of grace and truth at the same time, which means he showed us where we were out of line with God's design for our lives, but he also forgave us freely. He pointed out your sin, but he accepted you unconditionally. He loved you not for what you had done or how good you have been. He just loved you for who you were, someone who was created in God's image. Jesus never turned down his grace, and he never watered down the truth. As a matter of fact, John wrote that that is part of this new thing Jesus introduced to the world. He said, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, for the world to know what it was like, they had to understand Jesus was bringing something different. All John's world had ever known was what it felt like to try and keep the law. For the Jewish people, the law Moses gave had been expanded to 613 commands that they were supposed to keep, and they believed they had to keep them to stay in God's good graces. Now imagine this. Jesus comes along. He says, I'm putting an end to that. I'm introducing a relationship with God that is not based on your performance or your goodness. It's based on my grace and my truth. It's based on the truth that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. It's based on a grace that you don't have to earn forgiveness. God's given it to you freely. Now, you know what you call that? When you're full of grace and truth, you call it love. 
And that's what this new movement Jesus started was intended to be known for all along. Listen, as a follower of Jesus, we shouldn't be known for our moral behavior, our religious practices, or our pious beliefs. According to Jesus, first and foremost, we should be known for loving God, loving others, and loving our enemies. We ought to be known for loving others by being full of grace and truth, just like Jesus has loved us. So let me ask you a question. If this is what the church was known for, imagine if every Christian in our country, if every church in our community was known for being full of grace and truth, this kind of love, then what would there be that you would want to resist about Christians? I mean, if you're not a Christian, you may not believe what we believe, but think about it. Who wouldn't want to be around people who loved you like that? I mean, the only thing somebody should resist about the church is our trust and our loyalty to Jesus and our belief that he rose from the dead. I mean, there shouldn't be anything else. Because after all, who wouldn't want to be a part of a movement that loves one another that deeply? I mean, that's what we should be known for. Not our positions, not our politics, not our power, not our money. We ought to be known for love. And you know what love does? Love compels you to serve. That's why we value serving so much at our church. As we move into our new facility in the next few months, there are going to be hundreds of people who walk into the doors for the first time. And listen, when they walk out, they will have formed an opinion about us. We'll be known for something. And they better know that we love them because of how well we serve them. They better see as we serve them how much God loves them. Everybody in our community deserves to know that. So if you're a Christian, let me ask you a question. What are you known for? I mean, like, really? When your name comes up in a conversation, what do people in this community think about you first? If they don't think of how you love people like Jesus does, maybe you're not following Jesus very well. And if you're going, well, yeah, Matt, but there's more to it than just love. Come on. Okay, I get that. Just lean in. Tune in for the next few episodes, okay? Because your resistance to that just might be an indication that you have let the religion model mix with the Jesus model and it has messed everything up. Let's be a church that's known for love. Let's invite, let's give, let's serve. Let's be a group of people known for loving our friends, loving our enemies, and loving everybody in between with the same sacrificial, other-centered love that Jesus has shown us. Because that's what every person in our communities deserves to experience. That's the kind of love that changes everything. But you mix it up with the religion model and you'll mess it up and you'll end up on the wrong side of God. And we'll pick it up right there in our next episode.